We are today in uh, still in Psalm 45. I was going to do that in in two weeks, but last week we had a foreshortened class, and uh, so uh, we weren't able to finish it. So I'd like to finish Psalm 45 today, and then next week, uh, as you see from the study sheet, I'd like to start looking at Psalm 18, and that'll take us uh, probably three lessons or so to look at Psalm. 18. Uh, it's a considerably longer psalm than Psalm 45 and has a great deal in it and is a very precious psalm. Uh, you're probably familiar with uh, significant parts of that psalm already, uh, but that's what we'll uh, begin to do next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, we do have coming up uh, a couple things I guess I should mention. They asked me to mention one is uh, this Wednesday. Uh, he already announced this Wednesday evening this uh, former uh, Muslim gentleman will be speaking. I believe he's from the Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and uh, he will be speaking beginning at uh, what do you say six six o'clock six o'clock Wednesday evening, and that should be interesting. And then uh, I believe it's the first Sunday in October. Uh, we have a gentleman coming from the Cornwallis, I believe it's Cornwallis Institute, I believe it's called, and they're a Christian organization dealing with the issues of the environment. And uh, so he'll be speaking, and I'm looking forward to hearing him. I've read some of the stuff that Cornwallis has put out, and they put out some really good stuff. So uh, that's coming up in early October. But uh, for now, as I said, we are in Psalm 45. And uh, uh, let's just read the psalm and then uh, review some of the things we've already considered and go on from there. He says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies." Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. 
In place of your fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Okay? Uh, so, uh, by way of review, let's go back and think. What are some of the things that we have learned already as we've been looking at this song? Okay, okay. He starts out uh, as a, just a celebration, a hymn in celebration of the marriage of some, presumably some Hebrew king, but he very quickly, the psalm escalates into a contemplation of, of uh, the uh, ultimate marriage of, the, of uh, the ultimate king, the king of kings, the Lord, to his people. And uh, so in the context, written in the context that it is, it was probably a contemplation of Israel's union with God as uh, God being Israel's husband or, or groomsman and Israel being his bride. Uh, but uh, then as we go on into the New Testament, then, of course, it, it uh, begins to assume messianic, uh, more messianic uh, 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 imagery and, and interpretation even yet. And so it becomes for us a picture of the uh, uh, the marriage of Christ to his church. OK, and the church, of course, would include uh, believing Jews uh, and Gentiles as well. So this is a picture. This is a uh, messianic psalm picturing for us the wedding of, of, of Christ and his bride. What else? What is its what is its genre, and how is that Why is that important to us? Are we gonna to have to go back and talk about types of literature again? What type of literature is this? Poetry. It's poetry, okay. And why is that important as we approach the song? Okay, okay. With poetry, oftentimes you have uh, word pictures and you have personification and you have similitudes and uh, similes and things like that. You have all these different things. So, so we don't necessarily, when we're reading a song, we, we, we don't necessarily always assume that things are very literal. Sometimes they're a picture or they're meant to illustrate something. So, the, so as I was pointing out last week, sometimes the terminology or the expressions or the words that are used in psalms are not in themselves literal, but they're communicating a literal truth. And we need to make that distinction. So, uh, so when he's speaking of, of, of the queen here, we're speaking messianically of the queen being, or the bride, excuse me, being, of course, representative of the church. And he talks about her clothing. He's not talking about literal clothing. The clothing is representing something. So that's just something we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with poetry which is one particular kind of genre or type of literature that we have in the Bible. What are the two main divisions of the psalm? What are the two primary things he talks about or talks to or whatever in the psalm? Uh, 
Pardon? The king and the bride. So the first uh, nine verses are addressed, or actually the first verse is introduction, and then verses two through nine are addressed to the king and are, and are given are a, a hymn or a song in praise of the king. And then beginning in verse 10, he changes his focus and he begins to address the, primarily the bride beginning in verse 10 down through verse 15 or into possibly verse 16. He's addressing the bride and uh, he's speaking to both to the bride and about the bride in uh, those verses. And then in verses 16 and 17, we have his conclusion. So two main divisions. One, he's talking about the king. And second, he's talking about the bride. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of the psalm. We looked at what he was saying about the king. And we, we, we considered uh, the beauty of the king, the graciousness of the king, the valor of the king, uh, the throne of the king, the court of the king. Those are all things that are portrayed to us in very splendid ways in just a very few verses in the first part of the psalm. Uh, and uh, then last week we began to look at the second part of the psalm where he addresses the bride. What are some of the things we talked about last week as he begins to address the bride? Okay, okay. He begins by urging her very strongly to listen up. You know, he says three times. He says, listen, give attention, incline your ear. So this is a very important thing he's trying to communicate to this bride. Probably in its original context, the bride was possibly from a foreign land. Okay, she's possibly a foreigner. And so the idea is, coming as a foreigner, she's going to have to, if she's going to really fit into this new, uh, this new relationship with the king and if she's going to function well as his queen in this new land among these new people, she's going to have to forget her old, her, her, her old home. She's going to have to forget her old uh, family and her old fathers, etc. She's going to have to leave those behind and fully identify uh, with her new husband. That's why uh, in the wedding ceremony, incidentally, in the, in the normal wedding ceremony, uh, we have that phrase about forsaking all others and clinging to one another. Okay? It's that same idea. And that's, a, and that's an idea, or that's a thought that runs all the way through Scripture as we talked about last week. Is that, is that coming to God and being joined to God involves leaving some things behind. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with Ruth. We see it in the teachings of Jesus where He says, if you're going to be My disciple, you, need to, you must hate your father and mother, etc., etc. And of course, we understand what He means there is not to literally hate, but the comparison of our love for Christ uh, so far exceeds uh, our affection for our families uh, that it's, it's almost like we hate them. Uh, so, so, there's that idea communicated in the teaching of Jesus. So, in this imagery that we have here of the bride in this psalm representing the church, uh, what he's calling us to as a church is to forsake the world, to leave the world behind. As, as, as Jesus said, we are in the world, but we are not of the world, right? And, uh, and so... 
so we, we do have to function in the world. We do have to live in the world. Uh, you know, we have to go grocery shopping. We need to mow our lawns. You know, uh, we've got to go to work. You know, we have to do those kinds of things. But we need but we need to make a clear separation or division uh, between those kind of things and the values of the world, the standards of the world, the things that the world loves. Uh, those are the things that we need to put aside and the church needs to put aside. And one of the great struggles of the church uh, throughout its history has been, is, is, is getting to a point of understanding, trying to understand uh, what God is calling us to do, what Christ is calling us to do, and, and what the world is calling us to do and where the line of division is between those two things. And we haven't always done a very good job of making those distinctions. So a lot of times the things of the world get mingled in with the things of the church. And, and as the psalm here makes very clear, we become attractive to God when as a church we leave behind the world and we forget our people in our father's house and we fully align ourselves with the king. Okay, so that's the idea that's being communicated there. What else uh, is he saying to the bride that we talked about last week? Okay, okay. This is uh, this is a unique marriage. Okay, we don't have many marriages like this. You know, I think about uh, I've oftentimes think about the. Uh, Queen of England, okay, and she's married to uh, to uh, this guy, you know, but she's the queen, and he's just, uh, you know, he's not the king. He's a, I think he's called a prince, isn't he? Uh, pardon, Prince Philip. Prince Philip. Yeah, okay. So he's not, you know. So it it, it changes, you know, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. It's a little bit different. Of course, she doesn't really function as a queen in, in the full sense of the word anymore. Uh, but that changes the dynamic of the relationship. And that's what we have here in this marriage. I don't believe that the psalm here is trying to portray for us or the psalmist is trying to portray for us what the normal marriage or the normal marriage relationship is supposed to be like. Excuse me. He's talking about a specific union where a woman is marrying the one who is the king. Okay. And it is a picture for us, as I said, of, of uh, the church being married to Christ. And so there, are some, there is some uniqueness to this relationship. And as, the, as this woman is coming and is she being, she's being married to the king, the first thing she does as she comes is she's told that she is to bow down before him because he is her Lord. She has to recognize, first of all, that he is the Lord. He is her Lord. He is because he is the Lord of the whole domain of the whole kingdom. He's her Lord as well. And she has to see him in that light. And then and only then can then she go on and uh, and become uh, become his bride and be married to him and become his queen and his wife. And so uh, so that again is a picture for us of the church's relationship to Christ. When we come to him. We come to him first as Lord and we recognize his authority and his dominion over all things. Uh, and then once we have recognized that, uh, then we are in a position to become his bride. Uh, 
Okay. Now, I mentioned last week, and I want to stress this again this week, that in the Old Testament, we have the picture of, of God as the husband and Israel as his wife or his bride. Okay, And there are many analogies in the prophets and uh, metaphors in the prophets using that analogy where you have God and you have Israel. Okay, Israel as a people, Israel as a group, Israel as a nation is joined to God as her husband. Okay, And then when we move into the New Testament, we have this same type of analogy. We have God, in this case it's primarily Christ, Okay, and we have the church, and the church is wed to Christ. Okay, And so Christ is the groomsman, and the church is the bride. Okay. I don't know of any place in the Bible where this analogy of the husband or uh, of the groomsman and the bride pertains to individual people. Paul never describes himself as the bride of Christ. You know, Peter never is called the bride of Christ. You know, there's no individual in Scripture that's ever referred to as Christ's bride, either male or female. Okay, so the analogy that Scripture uses is always an analogy of God with His people as a group, as a corporate entity, and not as individuals. Okay, and I think that that's probably important to keep in mind. I don't know. Uh, necessarily what all the implications of that are, but I think it's important to keep that distinction in mind. It always makes me a little uncomfortable when I hear an individual talking about about God being their husband, and I always go, that's a little weird. You know, I don't understand that, and I don't understand the implications of that. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that uh, when we do that, we step outside of the way that Scripture uses this metaphor. Okay? Uh, so, uh, so that's about as far as we got uh, last week, which uh, brought us down uh, uh, to verse eleven. Uh, and and then he's he's uh, so he's he's been urging her, he's been enjoining her on things, and then he begins to describe the the consequences or the results that flow from this union of of this woman to the king or uh, in the case that we're talking about the union of Christ, uh, the union of the church to Christ. Uh, he says, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She is led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins or companions who follow her will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace in the place of your fathers will be your sons and you will make them princes in all the earth. Okay. So he begins then to to describe. Remember, we had this picture of what this wedding was like. You have the king in his palace and, and he's all ready and his throne is all ready for this great wedding ceremony. And then you have the procession of the bride coming from another location, from her own home or some other location uh, where she's been kept. And she goes through this procession through the city with all the singing and celebration that goes on and presumably uh, something like this that we're reading in these verses is being sung as she proceeds to the palace to be married uh, to, to be married, to, to be joined to the king, and uh, and uh, and and the and the psalmist here begins to describe 
this bride and what's what's entailed in what flows from her joining the king and what she looks like uh, as she comes to be wed to the king. And and the first thing he says is uh, he points out is that the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift and the rich among the people will seek your favor. And uh, that's a little bit difficult to kind of understand here. Remember, again, we're talking about poetry here. Okay, so uh, it's not so much that he's talking in a literal sense, but he's trying to paint a picture for us of this bride, what she's like. And, and, and what goes on around her as she has joined to the king. And in the course, of, apparently, of this wedding, uh, he describes a situation where the daughter of Tyre... Now, the daughter of Tyre is probably a personification. It's probably intended simply to represent the people of Tyre. Okay, uh, So, he's not speaking about a particular woman here, but he's speaking about the population of Tyre, the people of Tyre, okay? And uh, Tyre was a, uh, was a seaport city in Phoenicia, uh, very close to Israel, and, uh, and it was a major uh, economic center, a major trading center. So it was an economically, commercially significant city. So, this, so it would represent the people who, who have achieved wealth because of their uh, engagement in commerce and trade and that sort of thing. And so these wealthy people, he says, are coming with a gift for the bride. And, uh, and then he mentions that the rich, of the, uh, uh, the rich among the people, he says, will seek your favor. Um, now, when we begin to speak eschatologically, in other words, when we begin to speak of the end times, which is ultimately what this is picturing for us, the the uh, the wedding supper, if you will, the marriage supper of the Lamb is what's being pictured for. So, so we're speaking eschatologically. We're speaking of the eschatos of the end time. Okay, and it's very difficult to understand if you try to be too literal here. What's what's he talking about when he's talking about people bringing gifts? Now, there is a passage in uh, in Revelation. You might just flip over there and look at it in Revelation uh, twenty. Uh, uh, 21, and he's talking about the New Jerusalem, okay? And uh, so he's talking about all the splendor and the glory of the New Jerusalem, and he's describing it. Okay. And there's a great deal of controversy, or uh, I should say difference of opinion among Christian expositors as to exactly what is the New Jerusalem, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as he's describing the New Jerusalem, down in verse 24, he says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then down in verse 26, he says, they will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it. Now, I'm not going to propose to you right now or explain to you exactly what uh, the New Jerusalem is. I don't know what your view is of the New Jerusalem. But one of the things that's clear that the Lord wants us to understand about the New Jerusalem is that it's in this place of remarkable honor. Okay? That the kings of the nations... Now, in, when you have the New Jerusalem, and you know, you've got the new heavens and new earth and New Jerusalem, I don't know who the nations are here. Okay? So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I don't want to be too literal with this. Okay? 
But what I want to understand, what I want us to understand is that the New Jerusalem, where the people of God live and dwell and have their relationship and their ongoing relationship with God, that this is a place of great honor. This is a place of great privilege. And it's represented by the fact here in Revelation that the kings of the earth bring their honor and they bring their glory and they bring their wealth into the New Jerusalem. Okay. And uh, so, so how are you interpret the specifics of what's going on there? And as I said, there are several different interpretations. However you interpret the specifics of that, what is clear is that the people of God living in New Jerusalem are now in a place of great honor and great privilege. So if we go back to the psalm now, Psalm 45, and he's talking about Tyre coming with a gift and the rich among the people seeking your favor. It's a picture again that the bride has been elevated now to this place of great honor. Now this is a radical change for the bride of Christ, isn't it? Because Paul, early, uh, much earlier, of course, speaks uh, earlier time-wise, speaks of the fact that in the church of Christ, he says, there are not many mighty and there are not many noble, right? The church is just made up of ordinary people. Now, we have a few who are, you know, powerful and elite and that sort of thing. But as a whole, the church is a very humble institution. Okay, I mean... Not always humble in the way we ought to be humble, but we are humble in the sense that we're not great, we're not powerful, uh, etc., etc. There are many, many times in the church's history when it has sought that richness, that wealth, and that power. But, but typically, the church is not that way. The ter- true church has never really been that way. Okay, and and so what what the psalmist is describing here, and what. What John is describing in Revelation is a, is a remarkable inversion, isn't it? It's a remarkable uh, change in circumstance for the church. We see this really portrayed, I think, quite vividly in the story in the Gospels of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Now, I don't know whether that's a parable. Some, many people think it's a parable. Some people think it's an actual event that happened. Uh, I know Ronnie thinks that the, the story of the... Uh, rich man Lazarus was an actual two actual people, and it's an actual event that Jesus is describing. Others view it as a parable, but whichever the case may be, uh, it is a remarkable picture for us of the inversion that takes place in the eschatos, in the end times. Okay, in that we have this man, we have this rich man. He's very wealthy, but he's very self-centered. Okay, so he's not a believer. He doesn't love God. He doesn't serve God. And uh, and and, but he's very wealthy and he has this, you know, very uh, he lives in this very wealthy situation. Okay, but outside his door is Lazarus. And we discover about Lazarus. He's very poor. He sits there on the ground and, and he's eating the crumbs from the rich man's table. In other words, he is at the mercy of the rich man. And, and whatever scraps the rich man has left for him, that's what Lazarus gets. Okay? And, uh, and, and, but Lazarus is apparently righteous. Okay? And, uh, so then, then Jesus tells us that they both die. And the rich man, he goes into Hades. And Lazarus, he goes into, 
Abraham's bosom, okay, which would be a picture for us of paradise, okay. So he's in Abraham's bosom, and and now the now the picture is totally switched, isn't it? And what we find is the rich man is seeking favor from Lazarus, right? So first he's talking with Abraham. He sees Abraham up there, and he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he sees Abraham up there, and he's talking to Abraham. And he makes a request. What's the first request? Excuse me, the first request he makes of Abraham. Pardon? Who? Lazarus. Right? He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put a drop of water on my lips or my tongue. I forget exactly how it's worded. Okay. So he wants... Lazarus now to be showing him favor, okay? Or Abraham showing him favor through Lazarus, okay? And Abraham explains to him, well, that just can't be done. You know, there's this huge goal fixed between us. And he explains in quite some detail that this can't be done. And so the rich man makes a second request. And what is that request? Pardon? Okay, and how? How's he going to warn his brothers? Send Lazarus back. He's got a lot of nerve. Lazarus is here finally in paradise and he's asking him to send him back to earth, you know. But, but so you get this picture then, don't you? That the powerful and the rich of the world, uh, who have been, uh, in this case, have been godless. Not that they all are, but that they, in this case, they were godless. That, that the tables are now turned and the righteous are on top. Okay? And the, and those who were powerful and influential but wicked in the world, they are now in the position of seeking the favor of those who are righteous. So this is the idea, I think, that's being conveyed here in the 45th Psalm. Is that, is that this woman, whatever her station in life was before this time, now she's going to be in a place of honor, a place of recognition, a place where others come and seek her favor. This is the picture of the church. The church is despised. The church is ridiculed. And even increasingly more so as time goes on and in our culture and in our society. Uh, the church is looked down upon. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. Okay. Um, but there's coming a day when all that is going to change. There's coming a day when, when this actual wedding materializes. When... This wedding actually happens where the church is wed to Christ. The church is going to be placed in a place of honor. She's going to be in a place of recognition. She's going to be in a place where others would look to her and seek her favor. It's going to be a remarkable turn of events. But there's a lot has to happen in us before that can happen in the church, isn't there? We need a we need a we need a remarkable dose of humility and grace before we'll be in a place to be in that kind of position of honor, right? Before honor, he says, comes humility. So there's much that must happen to us as a people before, before we can be entrusted with that position. But that is what lies ahead for the people of God. This remarkable inversion, okay? So he says... Uh, uh, then, he, then he begins to describe the bride's beauty. And he says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. 
Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. And then he begins to talk about her companions. We'll talk about them in a minute. So he begins to describe the beauty of the queen. He says she's all glorious within. Probably, uh, it seems to me, from what I've been able to determine, excuse me, that the within there is a reference to her uh, her presence in in the palace or in the in the wedding room, okay, in the wedding chamber, uh, uh, not the not the bridal chamber as we think of it, but but just her as she comes into the palace for the wedding, as she's in there and people look at her, they're going to go, wow. She's described as all glorious, okay. So the bride is all glorious. We do that in our weddings today usually, don't we? We try to really make the bride spectacular. You know, that's the big thing. You know, when a woman's going to get married, when a young woman's going to get married, you know, the big item. There's a lot to do to get ready for the wedding. But what's the really big item on the wedding, on the agenda, getting ready for the wedding? The dress, the bride's dress. You know, and oftentimes weeks, sometimes months are spent. Not to mention the money that is spent in choosing the bride's dress. They have, yeah, they have entire TV shows about it. Okay, and 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 there's a, you know, and and uh, you know, some of us we, you know, we choose to eschew that. We decide, you know, we don't want to go that route. Uh, my wife's, uh, my wedding was very simple, and my wife wore a very simple dress. So some of us choose not to do that, but. But there's meaning in that. It's not that it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. I think you know maybe uh, you know if somebody's you know well I won't go there. But let's just say I think it can go too far. Okay. But but I but I think there's a great deal to be said for a bride wearing a beautiful dress because if 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 if, if our weddings in the church are to be representative of this ultimate wedding, then then what's wrong with that as long as uh, things are done with reason and and uh, and thoughtfulness, but so so we put a lot of thought in that because we want the bride to look glorious. And you know, I've seen some women in their weddings. I'm not real big on going to weddings, but but I've seen some women in their weddings, and I thought, wow, she's never looked that pretty in real life. <laughs> you know, they really make them look spectacular. Okay. <laughs> Uh, don't ask me who. I'm not telling any. You know, I'm not giving any names here. But, uh, but they, we just go out of our way to make them look really, really good. And I want you to notice that apart from all the hassles that are involved in getting them that way, the groom's the groom usually has no objection to that. The groom's usually pretty cool about his bride looking as spectacular as she can look for her wedding. Just make sure he doesn't have to be involved in picking the wedding dress. Yeah, okay. We, want, we don't want to be involved in the process, but we like the product, right? Okay. And so the, the groom is usually thrilled to see his bride decked out and all glorious as she comes down the aisle. Okay, so that's the picture we have of this woman. She's all glorious within her. She, she said her clothing is interwoven with gold. Now, that'll raise the price of your wedding dress, won't it? But her, 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 her garments are interwoven with gold. And she, she, is, 
She is brought to the king in embroidered work. So she is led up the aisle, so to speak, or led down the hallway into the, into the throne room and into the king. She is led to him wearing embroidered work. Okay? Now, uh, I happen to have a, a daughter who is uh, uh, obsessive compulsive about embroidery. Okay? She doesn't do a lot of it because it is so time consuming, but she's done some really remarkable embroidery stuff that is just stunning to me. Okay? And, and actually, hers is pretty simple compared to what some people do, but when I look at it, I go, wow, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And I've seen her uh, do various things uh, that just that baffle the mind. I think about the time that goes into it and the creativity and the uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and she's very good at this. And so I think about this picture of this woman who is wearing these garments that are interwoven with gold. And, and in Revelation, it describes the garments she's wearing as white linen. So you have this white linen and it's interwoven with gold and it's beautifully embroidered. And this is what she wears as she comes to the king. It's a very beautiful picture. Now, in Scripture... When the scriptures use clothing metaphorically, what are they usually talking about? Okay, the outer appearance or the what? Uh, the works. Okay, what we do. So, for example, Isaiah at one point he speaks about uh, about all our righteousness being what as. Filthy rags, right? Okay, so so there he's talking. It's a negative picture, you know, that we're wearing these filthy, filthy rags, and and that's our righteousness, our own self righteousness. Okay, um, but in other places we we learn about about taking on the righteousness of Christ, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? And so clothing is oftentimes in Scripture used metaphorically to speak of righteousness, speak of our deeds, our acts, our righteousness. And sometimes it's used, as I just mentioned, to refer to that that righteousness which is reckoned to us, that righteousness which is attributed to us by grace. Okay? So that although uh, my own garments are filthy rags, as Isaiah says, yet now I those have been removed and and I have been given the righteousness of Christ and I am now clothed in his righteousness, okay? But I don't think that that's what the psalmist has in mind here. I think what the psalmist has in mind here is not this idea of attributed righteousness, but I think he has in mind the actual righteous acts of the church. The things which the church has actually done. The deeds it has done, which are glorious and beautiful and righteous, Okay? So, for example, in that passage in uh, Revelation, uh, let me just look at it so I get it right. I think it's Revelation 19. And in verse 18, it says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay? And so, so I think that what the psalmist has in mind and what John has in mind there in Revelation is the actual righteous acts of the church. And when she comes before God, she's going to come to God with all these glorious, righteous acts that she has done. 
And it's at this point in our exegesis where we stop and we go, excuse me? What are you talking about, Rick? Because when most of us think of the church, we don't think about that. Because typically, when we think of the church, and I'm not talking about Trinity Baptist Church here, but I'm talking about the church as a whole. When we think of the church, what do we usually think about today? All kinds of junk, right? We think, we think about all kinds of junk. It's the easiest thing in the world to be critical of the church. And you know what? I don't know of many Christians who ever talk about the church in these terms. Do you? When you talk about the church, do you talk about her glory and her splendor and all her righteous deeds? You may be going, what righteous deeds? You know? I mean, I think about the Crusades and I think about, you know, uh, witch hunts, you know, and I, and, and I think about the persecution of Galileo, you know, and I think about, you know, and I think about all, you know, and I think about uh, its, its involvement in slavery uh, and its endorsement of slavery. And I, and I think about, you know, and I think about divisions and scandal and, and so-called Christian ministers who, who, uh, who, uh, who engage in sexual abuse and, 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 and we could just go on and on and on, couldn't we? That's an amazing coincidence because so does the secular world. Well, yeah, but, but there's a difference there. We expect that from the pagans. But the church is supposedly supposed to be different. Okay? And, and so if we wanted to, we could, if, I, if I just started asking you to list all the problems in the church, we'd fill this board up in a couple minutes, wouldn't we? We'd just fill it up in a couple minutes. And we wouldn't have any trouble doing it because we're always thinking about it. Now, one thing I have seen is that and, and maybe this is an unfair generalization, but I think that's even that that's even more characteristic of young people. Uh, I know when I was younger, I was I was merciless in the way I looked at the church. I remember uh, this is back before I was married. Uh, I remember uh, uh, a couple times I I taught a, a Bible study, twenty five things that are wrong with the with, uh, the with the normal church, you know. And, and I would go through, and it took me about an hour and a half, and I went through 25 different things that I could see. You know, it was very easy for me to do. You know, and young people, it's very often easy to be very idealistic and therefore very critical of others, right? But if I'm finding all these problems wrong with the church, what am I saying about myself? Your works will still be right. Well, no, but I mean, what am I really communicating when I'm saying all these things when I when I'm saying well I see the church is doing this wrong the church is doing this wrong and 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 and, and, and I just talk about all the wrong what am I what am I really doing I'm disassociating I'm making myself superior I'm putting myself in a position of judge right now now I don't want to be I don't want to be Pollyanna here okay and I don't want to communicate that all those things aren't problems I don't want us to be without discernment. So we just accept whatever the church does and whatever the church says. Okay. 
I think I think we need to be discerning, and I think we do need to speak when the church sins and when the church uh, uh, fails and when the church falters. I think we do need to speak about those things. But our problem is that that's not the way God looks at the church. Now God sees all those things, right? He sees all that stuff. But it's the Holy Spirit who inspired Psalm 45. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired Revelation 19. And that's after he wrote Revelation 1, 2, and 3 to the churches, right? So God sees the problems. But, but He sees the righteous deeds of the church. Well, what are they? Well, I would suggest to you that they are many. And they are awesome. Yeah. What about the complex uh, side of the deeds of the church? I, mean, I don't know the culture today and how people were married and how their brides were prepared. But is there anything there to, su- to suggest that what she's wearing was a gift of the king and his own eager form to give her these great wonderful things to make her beautiful? I would assume that's probably s- somewhat true. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah. For him? Uh, I don't know the full, I don't know the whole answer that way. What I would do if I put it in context for the Esther. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 But, but what is striking when we go back and we think about the church? If we just, if we just right up front, we say, okay, the church has got problems and she's made many, many mistakes and many of them have been terrible mistakes. Okay. We'll just give, that's a given. But let me talk to you about the church for a minute. The church began as this simple little, institution at Pentecost. A few hundred people. And they just believed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they wanted the world to know about it. And they wanted to live their lives out in the reality of that death, burial, and resurrection. And so, they began to preach. And initially, of course, they were preaching in a, uh, a monotheistic nation in Israel uh, uh, that was in many ways very antagonistic to them, but at least some of the ideology, the worldview was very similar. But very quickly they moved out of that into the pagan world. And it is almost impossible for us to conceive of what the pagan world was like before the preaching of the gospel. But the world we live in, even the pagan world of today, even the unbelievers today, their their thoughts, their mentality, their culture has been profoundly influenced by the preaching of the gospel. And so the church began to preach and it began to just simply live out the gospel. And one of the first places where the church began to have a profound influence on the culture is they would go out to the garbage dumps and rescue the babies who had been thrown on the garbage dumps in the ancient Roman Empire. The unwanted children who had just been thrown out alive into the dumps to die. It was a common practice. And it also was a common practice of the church to go out there and take those babies and rescue them off the dumps 
and take them into their homes and raise them as their own children and train them up in the gospel. And slowly, oh, it took a long time because the church took a long time to grow, but slowly over a period of centuries, the world came to understand you don't kill your babies. And that is because of the church. Another feature of the ancient world, it was ubiquitous throughout the entire world, even in Israel, was the practice of slavery. But the church came along and the church began to preach the value of human beings. The value of every human life. And eventually the church began to say, yes, these slaves can come and they can take communion with us. We extend to them the Lord's Supper. We include them with us in our fellowship. There is, as Paul says, there is no male or female, slave or free man in Christ. And the church begins to preach. And it takes a long time. But by the 10th century, slavery was eradicated in the Western world because of the influence of the church. Well, then you have uh, several centuries later, you have the uh, you have the beginning of the colonization of the Western Hemisphere, and all of a sudden, whew, slavery comes back. But who again stands in the forefront and opposes slavery and once again defeats it? It's the Church of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel. Along with this, you have the the Christian doctrine as it's being preached all over the world, throughout the pagan world, and particularly in the Western world, you have, you have the preaching of the Christian doctrine about God and the nature of God. And there are certain things that are implied when you think about the Christian God. And that is He is a God of order. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, right? The first thing He did is He takes a world that's, that's chaotic, and he gives it order, and he brings order, and he separates light and dark, and day and night, and, and uh, male and female, etc., etc. And he brings order to this whole chaotic thing. He's a god of order, and he has established these laws of nature, okay, by which we operate all the time, okay, and 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 we understand that this god is predictable. He is. He is, he, is, he is constant. He is faithful. These are Christian concepts. These are foreign to the, vegan, to the pagan world. And although the pagan world understood and operated that there were laws of nature, they didn't understand why they were there or that they were ultimately dependable. And so you have beginning in the Western world something you don't have anywhere else in the world, the development of modern science. This is a product of the Christian church. This is a product of the bride of Christ. So all the modern technology that you enjoy today, and the advancement of science that we enjoy today, is a result of the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the nature of God. So that, uh, for example, uh, Alvin Plantinga is a 
uh, uh, world-renowned Christian philosopher uh, and uh, highly respected throughout the philosophical world, both uh, non-Christian and Christian. He says, modern Western empirical science originated and flourished in the bosom of Christian theism and originated nowhere else. And uh, another great physicist of the a great physicist of the 20th century, a guy by the name of von Weizsäcker, says, "In this sense, I call modern science the legacy of Christianity." We don't think that way about science today, do we? But but it all takes its birth in the preaching of the gospel. All the early great scientists, all the earlier great discoverers, including Galileo and Copernicus, and all those great minds were all stout believers, devoted Christians. Or we could talk about the institution of democracy, which is rooted in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Or we could talk about the feeding and the caring for of the poor. Now, you know, there's a big debate in our society today about whether government should do this or whether the church should do it or whatever. But I want you to know that nobody would think the government should feed the poor if it weren't for the gospel. Because in the pagan world, although there are, you know, there are idiosyncratic examples of people feeding the poor in various situations, it was not a cultural phenomenon in the pagan world. You just let the poor suffer and you let them die and you let them starve. And it was Christianity that said the poor are made in the image of God and we must feed them and we must clothe them. And it was the preaching of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ that convinced the world we need to care for the poor. So even the most pagan of people in our society who say, let government feed the poor, they're still communicating a Christian concept and a Christian value that was not there before the church took its stand on the issue. The widows and orphans, exactly. And then there's the stuff that just goes on every day in the church of Jesus Christ that we don't think about it. Because as you're sitting in this classroom right now, Upstairs on the second floor and downstairs on the first floor. There are men and women who are devoted to taking little children and loving them and caring for them and training them up in the faith. And that's not just going on in this church, but that's going on in churches this morning all over America. And not only is it going on in churches all over America, but all, but all around the world today, and we're at the end of today because we're you know, a few time zones over. It's tomorrow already, okay? So we're at the end of today as far as the globe is concerned. So we're kind of Johnny-come-latelys. But before us, hours before us, all around the world, there have been churches, some huge, large churches of tens of thousands of people and other little, small, tiny churches of five or six people, some of them meeting in great, cathedrals and others meeting under a tree in a jungle. And they're taking little children and they're training them up in the love of God. And those children are grow, going to grow up to be great Christians who love Christ, who honor Christ, who seek to live righteously. 
the, the thing that we're doing here today that also is going on all over the world is right here in our classroom where Christians are being encouraged to live out their faith and are doing so as best they can. And so all over the world today, there are millions and millions, even billions of Christians who are seeking to follow Christ and live out the love of Christ with their husbands, with their wives, with their children, with their parents, with their neighbors, with their employees, with their employers, with the government, who would not do so if it were not for the church of Jesus Christ. And we could go on, couldn't we? We could go on. To, and all this stuff has been going on for 2,000 years, folks. <laughs> it's not a new phenomenon. And when God looks down upon the church, certainly, yeah, He sees all the junk. But He sees all this other stuff, too. And this is what it's all about, folks. It's all about all this glorious deeds of the church. And when the church is finally ushered into the presence of Christ, that's what he's going to be focused on. All the other junk is going to be gone. And it's going to be forgiven. It's wood, hay, and stubble. And it's going to be burned up. But what God will see, and what the angels will see, and what we will see, is the gold and the silver and the precious stones. The garments interwoven with gold. Beautiful embroidered garments. White linen. That's how the church is attired as it comes into the presence of the king. Well, he says, just briefly then, we'll, we'll wrap this up. He says, he talks about the virgins, her companions, he says, uh, who follow her, he says, uh, they're going to be brought to you, meaning brought to the king. He says, they're, they're going to be led forth with gladness and rejoicing and enter into the king's palace. Well, who's he talking about there? Well, again, remember, we're talking, uh, we're talking poetically, okay? And so if the, the bride, the, the woman here, the bride is representative of the church, then who are all these other women? <laughs> who are all these other attendants? Well, I think the best way to understand it is, is if... If the, the woman here, the bride in the passage here, represents the church as a corporate body, all the attendants who follow her are you and I. We're the individuals. Okay? So it's a reference to all the people who make up the church. So this song is not just about the church corporately, but it's also about you and I individually. That as the church is brought into Christ, we are her followers. And we come with her. And we come, he says, with gladness and rejoicing. And we are brought to the king. And we enter the king's palace. And so it's this fantastic picture of, you know, when we think about the, when we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we, we, there's, gonna, there's, there's a beauty in thinking about it as the church, as a body, as a unit entering into this glorious relationship. But there's, there's also a wonder and a beauty and a splendor to think about us as individuals being part of that. We're called into that. And we get to go be with the King 
And we get to live in the king's palace. And then he says, in place of your fathers will be your sons. And there's debate here uh, 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 as to exactly who he's addressing here. But I think it makes most sense to understand that at this point in verse 16, he's still addressing the bride. In place of your fathers will be your sons. Because earlier he talked about her having to forget her fathers. So what does she get? If she has to forget her people in her father's house, what does she get in his place? Where well, he says, in place of your fathers will be your sons. Now, you know, I've, I've noticed something about my kids as they started to have children. His mom and dad aren't quite as important anymore, you know, and that's cool. That's the way it ought to be, right? Because now they got kids and their life is focused on their kids. And he says concerning the bride, he says, in place of your fathers, in place of the things you left, in place of the world and the things you had to forsake, in the place of them comes your sons. And those sons are going to be princes in all the earth. The sons, again, is, is a reference to the individuals who are part of the church. And, and, and so for the church, if the church will just be faithful to love God and turn from the world... God will give to her in, in, in the place of, of, of what she has forsaken. He will give her many sons to bring to glory. And so then the psalmist wraps up and he says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all the earth, in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. And so the psalmist just wraps up what he began to talk about in verse 1 where he said, My heart overflows with a good thing. I address my verses to the king. My pen, uh, my mouth is the pen of a ready writer. Or my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now he's completed his song. But he said, I'm going to sing this song forever. There will never be a time in all eternity when we will forget the glory of what God has done for us. And the privilege of being married to Him. This week, my wife and I celebrated our 41st anniversary. As I got in the car to go out to dinner with her, I just told her, I'm glad I'm married to you. It doesn't matter how long we're married to Christ. It's never going to get dull. We're never going to be sorry. We forever and ever will be thanking Him for the privilege of being joined to Him in His palace in a place of honor. Okay? Next week we'll go back and look at Psalm 18.